0: Hi everybody and welcome to another Backpacking Life on the Road edition of Pottywood, the podcast where we talk to the people who make movies about movies. I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is
1: the yep, other co-host. That'll be me, Andrew Roger Carson.
0: Hello, Andrew Roger Carson. How are you this week?
1: Uh to be honest, I'm doing really well. Thank you very much for asking. And I would be 100% happy if it wasn't for the spoiler-verse going all around the internet, especially on Facebook and everywhere else, to completely ruin No Time to Die and Venom 2 before we even got them.
0: I can agree with you there. I have got no truck with spoilers. The the fate of a certain character, and I'm not even going to bring up which character it is, from Endgame uh, was spoiled to me literally earlier on in the day before I was going to go see the movie. And I still will never forgive this bitch who was hosting a show on Channel 4 who gave away the big twist at the end of The Sixth Sense.
1: Yes. You know, it's the, the only other thing that wasn't really spoiled for me this week was exactly how naff the new Resident Evil movie looks.
0: I've not seen the trailer yet, but to be honest, I was having a quick flick through the uh, the cast list on IMDb on the toilet before we came on air. And uh, it, it doesn't look exciting. Although, to be honest, none of the Resident Evil movies have really been that good. Not even the animated ones. Regeneration was all right, but... Uh... I,
1: I would actually go the animation ones were a lot better than the actual movies. Oh, yeah. But, oh, uh, without question. You know, sorry, Russ. Uh, if it helps, your one was the better one. Um, True. But um, this new one, Welcome to Raccoon City... Which is supposedly the promise of being, oh, so faithful to the game, stuff like that. I don't wanna watch a game. You know, I wanna watch a movie that has style and substance and really good plot. And I've watched the trailer for it and it's like I'm sick of zombies now. Yeah. I, I'm 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 sick of zombies. And I was kinda of hoping Resident Evil it was gonna go really, really hard R, maybe, and maybe it's it's it is. But I was kind of really hoping that this was going to be something with a bit more oomph, if you know what I mean. This just looks like any other Resident Evil movie yeah. without Milo Jojovic in it.
0: Well I will say is if they are going to be as faithful to the game as possible, let's hope they're being faithful to the remake as opposed to the original. Stop! Don't open that door! <laughs> because some of the voice acting in that original game was horrible. The dialogue was terrible as well. That was close. You were almost a Jill sandwich.
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, Shut up, e- Barry. E- even the dialogue in the trailer seemed incredibly shoddy, you know, as a way of selling it. It just felt very generic. And I think when it comes to writing uh, a new Resident Evil movie, give someone with some credibility the pen. Mm-hmm. And speaking of giving the pen...
0: yeah. Yeah. Let's
1: get into our Into the Wild review from What's in the Box from last week.
0: Yes. Well, first of all, congratulations on that segue. I was trying to work out how you're going to do it, and you did it quite well. Thank you very much. You. Uh, yes. So, last week, Andy drew out Into the Wild, which is a 2007 Sean Penn written and directed movie about the life and ultimate death of a man called Christopher McCandless and it's based on a book by a guy called John Krakauer, and it's detailing uh, stories and all the evidence left over, originally given by his sister and the the family, after he disappeared. Now, when this was pulled out of the box last week, I did make a crack about him being an idiot, who, who dies up in Alaska, ends up eating bark and drinking beaver piss, Well, I have to say, after watching the movie, my opinion is completely and totally the same. (laughs) Yeah, right. There is a good underlying message with this movie. And I I am going to say that I am addressing this as the movie. Regardless of what actually went on in the real Christopher McCandless's life, I'm not addressing that. Although, if what is happening in this movie is as truthful as it can possibly be, then... There's some severe question marks over his ability to do anything, really. It's a movie where it poses the, the idea that you might not want to get tied down to the grind that is modern 20th century life, that you might want to go out and you might want to explore the world around you. You might want to free yourself from the shackles of this society that we've created by getting rid of money and identity and just relying on yourself and your shoes and just taking to the road. And in terms of an actual film... It works quite well. The visuals are stunning. And it just goes to prove just how beautiful America can be. And it can be stunningly, achingly beautiful in places. Um, Having visited it myself in some times during the uh, last 10 years, I've seen the Atlantic North And all the pine hills sweeping down in places like Vermont and the greenery there. And I've also seen the exact opposite in Arizona. The dry arid deserts with the mountains in the distance. So it's a beautiful place. But I knew it each time that I wasn't going out into this wild. I wasn't trying to explore it. And he is, throughout the movie, and I'm not entirely sure as to whether or not he was suffering from some kind of mental health issue or was genuinely suicidal. Because he does things that no actual rational human being would do, let alone someone who is trying to detach themselves from reality and find themselves. There's just simple, basic things. Like... If you catch a bird and you want to eat that bird, the first thing that you do is pluck that bird. You get rid of all the feathers. You don't just jam your knife straight into its chest and then try and gut it. That causes a number of issues. One, that gets all the feathers into the meat. Two, that also punctures all the sac holding most of the organs that you need to get rid of. Um, He gets a canoe with no training uh no license and jumps straight into a river going down rapids and this is after he says earlier on in the movie that he's afraid of water yes going off that there's a number of times that he's after saying that he's afraid of water that he goes into the sea and he does all this thing on the river and i'm looking at this thinking is he deliberately trying to kill himself here is that his ultimate goal and then eventually he does end up in the wilds of Alaska after going through all these adventures. And he turns up there without the correct footwear, the driver of the car that drops him off, uh, who is actually the real person who dropped off the real Christopher McCandless. Someone's been
1: reading IMDB again.
0: Yes, they have. And You've been told about this. Shut your face. But yeah, he went up there without any maps, without any compasses. He, the clothes that he was wearing didn't seem to be suited to the environment. His equipment didn't seem to be suited for the environment. Um, he didn't take any, into account any kind of local knowledge and ends up being trapped up there. There is some issue as to whether or not he died from poisoning or from actual starvation. And I think most people are kind of leaning towards the former saying that he ate something which he misidentified. But uh, a lot of the way that it's presented in the movie just reeks of someone who just does not plan ahead. And he right at the beginning of the movie, he gets rid of all his money. And then throughout the movie, he has at least two jobs because he needs money. And I, I was just watching it just thinking, what are you doing
1: Maybe he was an incredibly confused person. I mean, there's a, there is a lot of debate on whether, you know, it's, his death was classed as either uh, death by misadventure or suicide. Mm-hmm. You know, and Alaskan Park Rangers have gone on record to say that, you know, it was incredibly uh, stupid and tragic, uh, as well as, you know, he, he was not ready to actually go and do that, you know, to actually go and survive in the wilds with no training, as you mentioned. Mm hmm. Um, and people have been copying this adventure of his, and these are the real stupid people, right? These are real stupid people who have been doing uh, the McCandless trek along that to find the bus and and camp out there, and have ended up dying or mm-hmm. having to be rescued. Now that is more stupid than Chris McCandless doing it. Yeah, if you know that you can die doing it, and you actually go and do it, I know. Last year in June, the magic bus itself was actually airlifted. Uh, due to public safety concerns. It is now getting prepped to be featured in a museum. Yep. Uh, I have I recently saw an article today where they were discussing that, oh, you can see it now. There's a section in that museum where you can see people actually working on restoring the bus. And it's like, why are you restoring it?
0: Yeah, Why are you yeah, restoring
1: why? it? Surely it's supposed to be the exact way it was. I think you should have just left it there. But then people are actually just taking this trek. And I say, well, fuck them. <laughs> right, I'm sorry. if they're going to take that trek knowing how dangerous and stupid it is why waste the fuel on trying to rescue them
0: yeah because we this is one thing which I think everyone kind of forgets when they view this movie and the story in general and lots of people view it as this wonderful soul searching message about a guy trying to find himself in the world and completely ignore the fact that no given the opportunity mother nature will kill you if you are not prepared for the environment, if you are not skilled in what it is that you need to survive in that environment, and if you are not equipped, then you will die. Mother exactly. Nature does not care. And it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if, in, if you are in the desert or if you're in the North Pole or wherever. You will die. Now, um, I think a nice little shout out does need to be said to the list of cameos that are in this movie.
1: Oh, the ensemble is amazing. I actually watched this again myself because I wanted refreshing on it. It had been over 10 years since I'd seen it. So I watched it again. Uh, Obviously, Emile Hirsch does a fantastic job. uh, Yes, he does. uh, Taking the Christian Bale diet, losing 40 pounds for the role.
0: And uh, an interesting twist. He did the voice of uh, the main character in Walden, which is... A, it's a book which was about similarly about a man who went off to live in a cabin and find himself, and it's like a classic of American literature. But he played the main part in that of a video game adaptation. Ah, so he's so getting pigeonholed. Yep, yeah, kind of. Yeah, um, but yeah, he played a great part. Uh, you've got a pre-Twilight Kristen Stewart. Yes. Uh, you've got Vince Vaughn and a completely unrecognizable Zach Galifianakis.
1: <laughs> yes. Ad-libbing his way through an entire movie.
0: Yeah. And you've got Hal Holbrooks. An amazing in A-N, performance
1: yeah. by Hal Holbrook. I think that was his only was it his only Oscar winner, or only Oscar nomination in his entire career. Yeah, his only
0: nomination, yeah. Yeah, and, and Catherine uh, Keener
1: is fantastic in it as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yeah, all around, it's just an amazing cast. Jenna Malone, William Hertz, Marsha Gay you, you just have a, a major who's who of talent in here. And then... I mean, the cinematography of the movie is top-notch. Yeah. It is beautiful movie to look at. It really is, which kind of really underscores the entire danger of the entire situation. I love, there was a c- section that really stood out to me where um, his car just got caught in the um, the flood and he's there and suddenly he's, he removes his license plates and then he burns his money on the floor. And it, and the symbolism, the, this shot of the money burning on the floor, it is really focused on. As if to say, you know, is, you know, is money the most important thing to everybody? And really focuses on it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, and you see him walking away and it's like, that's a really powerful image. You know, it's oh, a yeah. really great edit.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a great shot. Um, And the, the cinematography, I've got no problem with. But yet again, you know, the signs up saying it's a, a flash flood area. And yet he parks his car right where there's a flash flood and it gets hit by a flash flood. So he's just he, right even there he's not paying any kind of attention to this environment going on.
1: It's very true. Well, it It's uh, directed by Sean Penn, no stranger to uh controversial with movies like Dead Man Walking and Milk. Mm-hmm. Uh so and it took him 10 years to get this movie made and it was mainly due on waiting for the family to kind of agree on doing it etc and and you know the books being released all of that kind of stuff basically from ten years prior that he was interested in making the movie to actually getting it made. That is a, a decent anniversary. And
0: speaking of anniversaries...
2: We watch them again all of the time or oh, we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary.
0: Get down from your horse and drink your milk.
1: We seriously need to speed that music up. I think I need to get him to do a remix of it. It seems to get slower and slower for me every week. It's just you.
0: I swear to me, it's just you.
1: It may may be. It may be. But can you believe,
0: Steve? Go ahead, Andrew.
1: 40 years ago this week, the Burt Reynolds movie Paternity was released.
0: I haven't actually heard of this one.
1: Ah, well, funny enough... Neither is Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> because uh, it doesn't even have any kind of freshness or rotten or anything. It's just left on... Un... what's the word? Tomatoed. Untomatoed. Untomatoed. unsplattered, unsplattered. But yes, Paternity, I do remember this. It was directed by uh, David Steinberg, which fans of Curb Your Enthusiasm and Seinfeld will know, because he was mainly a TV director. Mm -hmm. of them shows and it followed this cycle of the really popular in the 80s gender role switching movies you know that was done with movies like Mr. Mom Baby Boom Three Men and a Baby you know those type of movies yeah. where Burt Reynolds is searching for a woman to have his baby no strings attached and I don't mean you know give them a baby and say go away actually have one of his babies so he can have a child without a partner
0: my god He wants to have a baby, and he's a man. What on earth is going on?
1: Whoa! (laughs) Yes, but actually, actually, this is one of Burt Reynolds' favourite movies. Is it? Yes. He Mm -hmm. said it kind of really mirrored him in real life. You know, the the one thing he always wanted was uh, a child of his own, and I don't believe he ever did. I don't think so. I could be wrong there. I don't know, to be honest. If any children of Burt Reynolds do get in touch, sorry. I, I didn't actually do my homework on that point. But, yeah, it was a personal favourite for him. It's a a decent enough uh, movie in the era when Burt Reynolds was king, Mr. Hollywood, when he was practically Dwayne Johnson back then in the early 80s. Especially behind the wheel of a car. Um, standout from this movie, it has Peter Billingsley in it. Do you know who Peter Billingsley is, Steve? Is he from uh, Christmas Story? He is. He is the infamous child. He was the kid in... uh, A Christmas Story, who just wanted his uh, BB gun. But did you know that Peter Billingsley was also a producer of Iron Man? Was he now? He was. He has actually had a really good directing and producing career, and he was an executive producer on the first Iron Man movie. So he was among the people to kickstart the MCU. Wow.
0: And he has a small role in it as well. Does he? What, in the first one?
1: Yes, he's in Iron Man, and he returns with the same role in Spider-Man... Far From Home, I believe.
0: What is he, like a shield agent or something?
1: Possibly. You'll have to go and watch them and find out. But yes, uh, Paternity, uh, hmm. it's it's a it's a decent movie, actually. You know, it's what I can remember it. The only bad things I can remember is uh, Elizabeth Ashley's really terrible accent and that terrible song Baby Talk that was on the soundtrack, which, uh, oh, it's, it's horrible. But yes, other than that, I've got nothing really bad to say about Paternity. I thought it was an okay movie.
0: No, fair enough. Not heard of it, but... Let's take your word on that one.
1: What's okay. next? Well, can you believe, Steve?
0: Mm, yes.
1: 25 years ago this week, The Nutty Professor was released.
0: Oh, God, is it that, that long ago?
1: It is that long. Directed by oh, Tom Shadyac, who had directed Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Mm-hmm. And uh, that uh, not-so-good Kevin Costner movie called Dragonfly, which I'm sure even Kevin's forgot about. But yes, uh, this was the uh, remake of the Jerry Lewis movie that starred Eddie Murphy. And it was Eddie Murphy's first movie to break 100 million at the box office in the 1990s. I was so, going
0: to say, because he, he must have plowed through that easily back in the 80s.
1: Oh, in the 80s, easily. But in the 1990s, he kind of hit a slump. You know, you had another 48 hours, which didn't mm-hmm. do so well. He had his directorial debut, which was Harlem Nights, which also didn't do so well and uh, i know there was some more in there i can't remember what they are which basically tells you how bad a time he was having up until the nutty professor which i remember at the time they were like oh eddie is back and i was like where's he been you know <laughs> he's
0: been sure. making vampire in brooklyn
1: oh oh god how did you remind me of that oh my god that I- I knew that I'd forgotten that for some reason. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Of course, he did Beverly Hills Cop 3. Shit, he really did have a really bad 90s. He
2: did. He He really did.
1: Oh, God. Vampire in Brooklyn. Yeah. I'd I'd erased that movie out of my mind. I can't believe you've reminded me of it. I was like, where's Craven and Eddie Murphy? You would have thought that would have been great. But no. But yes, known throughout the industry, and it's been parodied a lot, especially in Tropic Thunder, for the infamous family table farting scene that Mm -hmm. was... Almost cut from the movie, but the test audiences said that the Klump family were among the highlights of the movie, so it was kept. So that test audience has a lot to answer for.
0: Yes, namely the sequel.
1: Yes. Oh, oh God. Yeah, I went to cinemas to see that, and I don't think I've ever felt so betrayed. <laughs> but Jerry Lewis was offered a cameo in The Nutty Professor, but he turned it down because of all the fart humour. So test audiences... You're responsible for that too. Oh I think
0: this coming from the man of who made when the clown died or whatever it was.
1: <laughs> well, the, the the Jekyll and Hyde formula, which is basically what the Naughty Professor is, it's just a, a comedic version of Jekyll and Hyde. But it was that formula was actually done a year prior in a truly atrocious movie called Doctor Jekyll and Ms. Hyde, starring Sean Young. Uh and oh it was atrocious. Which
0: one did she play?
1: Uh, she played Miss Hyde, obviously. But, <laughs> yeah. Some of
0: the stories that I've heard about Sean Young, I ooh,
1: it could have gone yeah. either way. Yeah, probably could have, but yeah. Um, but the the things that always stand out about this movie. I mean, Eddie Murphy was great in it. He mm-hmm. had a very young Dave Chappelle in one of his kind of breakout moments. I think Eddie Murphy discovered him doing stand up and offered him this role in a movie as uh, this cruel stand up comedian, uh, which he does brilliant with, and. All in all, the makeup was great. I mean Eddie Murphy did this thing of like playing so many different characters. Yeah. Didn't uh, Rick Baker's
0: makeup win an award that yes. year? I believe it did,
1: yes. It might have won multiple um independent awards as well. But Rick Baker's makeup uh, did do well. The only problem with it being it led to Eddie Murphy doing more fat suit stuff like The Clumps Two and the biggest offence to cinema ever made in a movie called Norbit. Where he played an abusive wife.
0: Oh, God.
1: Mm. Mm. Yes. And it's, it's, that is a movie that I have gone on record plenty of times saying this is the most offensive movie I think I've ever seen in my life. Oh,
0: right. Come on, let's move along. Move on, move on. Yes. Oh, ca-
1: can you believe, Steve? Yes, Andy. 15 years ago this week, The Devil Wears Prada was released.
0: Oh, dear Lord. The, the Streep Hathaway... Movie that we never thought we wanted.
1: I actually really like this movie. Mm, Fair enough. I think it's a great movie, directed by uh, David Frankel, who directed uh, some episodes of Band of Brothers, and uh, there's another thing he directed called One Chance. Really good director. And this actually goes down in history as the most expensively costumed movie in movie history.
0: Now, I haven't seen it, but I can definitely appreciate that it could be, yeah, because if you if you're going to have a name like The Devil Wears Prada you need everybody in that movie to be stylish AF.
1: Well, yes, I mean, the costume designer apparently spent over one million on costumes alone uh, for this movie. And many designers didn't want to participate in the movie and that was due to fear of Anna Wintour and her reaction. And Anna Wintour, basically the Meryl Streep character is based on Anna Wintour, who was the legendary editor of Vogue at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, she was not even invited to the premiere. Right? But she she did manage to see a test screening of it with her daughter, and apparently she liked it. But uh, I know that she did have her office changed after the movie came out <laughs> because of uh, the design of the movie was so like hers that she just decided, I'm just going to have it changed. But this movie was responsible for the launch of Emily Blunt, as we all know her. Oh, right. So, so, Emily Blunt was actually discovered in a parking lot by the producers. She'd just been auditioning for a... It's like a dragon movie called Aragon. Yes. It came out, which was also a 20th Century Fox movie. But apparently she had been turned down after numerous callbacks and auditions for it. And she was... You know, she was like, oh, she was really dishevelled with it. A producer had saw her, put her on an audition tape, and she'd kind of flown back to England to recover from it when Fox came back with Devil Wears Pride and we'd like you to come in and audition for this, you know, and and kind of, you know, just come in comfortably, come in character, whatever. And apparently she came in, did the audition in jeans and flip-flops and got the role that basically made her uh, a star. Was she just wearing jeans and flip-flops? Well, that'd be something, <laughs> but no. I've, she, I hope she had a top on stuff. as well. But mainly in know, audition, it's jeans and flip-flops. But yes, uh, Devil Wears Prada. It's fanci- obviously, the costumes are fantastic and worth all the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, the actual screenplay is brilliant. You know, It's so well-written. It's it's a movie that even the guys can sit down and watch. You know, they kind of class it as a woman's movie, like a girl movie. Yeah. But guys can enjoy it as well. Stanley Tucci's in there, who always brings light to anything he's in. Uh, Meryl Streep is amazing in it. Emily Blunt is phenomenal in it. Anne Hathaway does a really good job in it as well. You know, it's got a really good score as well, from what I remember. Well, and I'll tell the you The music's what, really good.
0: If it isn't in there already, stick it in the box. It is in the
1: box. There we go. But I'll tell you what's not in the box. What isn't in the box, Andy? Can you believe, Steve? Ten years ago this week, Johnny English Reborn was released. Yeah... Right. Yeah. I need to go on record here. Mm. I've never really been a fan of Johnny English. I am a fan of Rowan Atkinson. Oh, yes. oh yes. Johnny English was just... Uh, there, there's I... something it reminded me of. It's like a Mr. Magoo as a spy.
0: The problem that I have with it is, is I'm not sure if the character of Johnny English is brilliant or or if he's an absolute idiot, because he swings from one side to the other. Yes, he does stupid things, but then he'll come out with some really, really obscure piece of trivia which happens to save the day. And The first one was all right. I didn't mind the first one. I, I thought that um, John Malkovich as well was kind of chewing the scenery a bit in that one. Um, but then the second one came out, and I was just yeah. very meh throughout the whole well, thing. Yeah, I
1: mean, it it was directed by Oliver Parker, who has incredible chops as a director because he directed um, Othello with Kenneth Branagh and Lawrence Fishburne. He directed um, Shakespeare's The Important of Being Earnest, that had Reese Witherspoon Mm -hmm. and that in it. And he he also gave us St. Trinian's, which we can just about forgive him for. But it it just didn't translate over in the same way. Uh, And I, I have watched it again, and I always kind of find it funny that Rowan Atkinson's movie debut was actually in a Bond movie, Never Say Never Again. Mm-hmm. Is it canon? Is it not canon? Because it was made outside of the main series where Roger Moore was still doing it. Uh, I like to think it is canon. Uh, but also, uh, Rosamund Pike, who is in Johnny English Reborn, she made her debut in a Bond movie as well, in Die Another Day. Oh, right! So, you know, there there is something to it, but Rowan Atkinson's performance... In this one, especially, it's really irritating. Which yeah, is he, he quite lacks extraordinary. The
0: suaveness that he has in the first one. Well, there's a few things
1: missing from yeah. it, and I find I think him being irritating is quite something considering all those years as Mr. Bean and his love it or hate it. But replaced in this movie, uh, Ben Miller, who was his like sidekick in the first one, mm-hmm. is replaced in this movie uh, for Daniel Culea uh, from Get Out. And the thing is, they actually filmed a transition scene where Ben Miller basically is explained why he's not his partner anymore and he gets a new psychic. And they ended up just cutting that scene out. So it's like, see you, Ben. Bye.
0: Yeah, go yeah. go do Death in Paradise. Go on. <laughs> yes,
1: go, go do that. Poor Ben. He was one of the best things about the the first one as well. Yeah. But yeah, um, the only notable thing really for Johnny English Reborn for me is uh, some little cameos in there. Some good and one incredibly questionable. So you've got Benedict Wong Mm -hmm. in a very early role doing a little cameo in there. You have Ian Shaw, who is the son of Robert Shaw from Jaws. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has a role in there. And then, bizarrely, Mariella Frostrup.
0: And Gillian Anderson.
1: Oh, and Gillian Anderson. But at least, you know, I mean, she is an actor. But Mariella Frostrup's never been an actor, really. She just used to do the movie chart show.
0: That's true. But it just goes to prove how much of an impact she actually made on me that I couldn't even remember that she was in it.
1: It was the voice, really. But yes, uh, they're the anniversaries for this week.
0: Yes. Well, there's some good films there. Certain not-so-good films, but that's that's up to you to decide. But as far as we're concerned, this show is not over. And now it's time to lead into part two of our fantastic interview with John Ashton.
1: Eddie Murphy also changed his character noticeably for the sequel. He kind of adopted this fast-talking style that he would employ throughout his career moving forward. Now, from Beverly Hills Cop 1 to the second one, his career really skyrocketed like no one else had before him. What changed about Eddie in the years between the movies that was noticeable to yourself? Was it still the same Eddie?
2: Yeah. No, when we got on the set, it was like we hadn't left no big deal I, and judge's character changed a lot in the second one you know with mm. the, the the trench coat and the guns and the whole thing you know that he brought that uh to the to the character and uh but uh no i mean uh, uh, personality wise are you talking about i mean Eddie was the same as he was on the first one he, he hadn't changed you know we just it, it really felt like we hadn't left you know we just picked up where we left off
0: so just going off that then um whose decision was it to change judge's character was it him was it there in the scripts was it kind of like a an organic thing where did that come from
2: i i it was uh mainly judge i think judge wanted to make him a little more macho you know and and uh <laughs> you know so judge judge kind of changed it which which uh you know i reacted at. uh to that as, as taggart would you know that's why i kept saying jesus billy we got to talk you know <laughs> 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 so i you know i reacted to his change you know and uh, which was uh, was kind of funny so and like i said we played it straight i just it was kind of like like what you're saying i was saying to myself as taggart what the hell happened to this guy well you know <laughs> we're gonna talk billy you know what the hell happened to you you know i mean that was to my subtext you know it's like
1: i think uh one, one of my favorite deliveries is when you're talking to uh chief lutz at the end and just this absolutely amazing delivery of kiss my ass <laughs> target gives it is so snapping it's like oh yeah kiss my ass <laughs> and you noticeably see all the other actors kind of jump a little bit when you say it uh it's, it's it was just a brilliant delivery
2: well thank you it's a, a little side story that uh i don't know if i really should get into it but uh there was a little a little tension with uh with uh, that actor and uh uh he he actually had had finished on the film uh two or three weeks before that, and um, he was brought back, they wrote that new ending into the film, and he was brought back to the show, and renegotiated his whole contract, and he did a whole bunch of stuff, and uh, a little tense on the set with him, so, um, and I I know he's passed, passed since, and you know, rest his soul, but... But uh, he was a little, little difficult to work with at times, and and part of that, part of that what Judge and I did was for real, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when Judge said if it you took your head out of your ass, and then I said kiss my ass, and you know part of that was real, and then, you know so. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm trying to be as kind as I can. So. <laughs> You're doing a very good job of it as well. It's very <laughs> statesmanlike.
0: <laughs> well, it broke all of the records for the weekend opening of uh, 1987 and immediately talks of a third start to circulate. Now, when it finally arrives in 1994, you are noticeably absent from the movie as well as Ronnie Cox. Now, what happened here? as the film was met with disdain from pretty much everyone when it came out.
2: Yeah, Um I had just finished doing a film and uh I was actually in Hawaii on vacation and I got a call while I was in Hawaii and they sent me the script for Cop 3 and uh, I read it while I was there and John Landis was directing it and I called him and I said, boy, this script just doesn't make any sense, you know? I mean... You've separated me and judge from Eddie, and you know uh you know and in the second one, Eddie makes a reference to us being the three musketeers, you know I mean, and now you've got us separated and know and John said, oh yeah, that'll change now this was around january uh of ninety three I believe December january, so uh I got back home and uh you know I got the script and we started negotiating and and then uh, the negotiations were going weird, and and I wasn't, I still wasn't happy with the script, and and they kept telling me it was going to change, it never did, and uh, their their shooting dates started to, to, well, we don't know if we're going to start in May or or April, or we're not sure when we're going to start, and so and, and uh, they weren't holding me uh, for for anything, so uh, John called me and he said, look, John, we don't know when we're going to start. So if something comes along, you know, go ahead and do it. So uh, it just so happened I got offered to do Little Big League uh, in Minneapolis. Uh, And I I took the job, and um, then they found out, and they called back, and he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm going to work, you know. (laughs) So uh, then the shooting, then they were going to start Beverly Hills Cop 3, And I was in Minneapolis shooting a little big league, and uh, so the the scheduling got all screwed up, and they tried to to get Castle Rock to give them a release date so they knew when I was going to be released from that film. And I was signed to do that film for 10 weeks. I was going to be in Minneapolis. So it's just the scheduling got all screwed up, and Castle Rock, uh, they refused to, and rightly so, uh refused to to put it uh, put a stop date in writing uh and uh paramount wouldn't accept that and they verbally said he'll be done but we can't put it in writing so i uh, uh it just scheduling problems all worked out it didn't work out and uh, i didn't do the film uh i wanted to you know i, I still you know I'm glad I did little big league. It was it, it was a nice little movie, and I and I I'm, and I'm proud to be in it. But uh, you know things just didn't work out, and hopefully, you know, uh, we'll do the fourth one, and I'll come back, and, and and Ronnie will come back, and hopefully we'll get the old cast together. And I, I I actually had dinner with Marty Brest in New York, and we were talking about four, and and I said, would you direct it? And he said, no. You know, I said I didn't direct it. Two or three. I'm not going to direct, them, you know, and, and that's just Marty. And, and anyway, I said to Marty, and I and I said to Jerry Bruckheimer, and I also Jerry Bruckheimer didn't produce the third one, you know. Uh, they had two other producers, so it wasn't the same team, you know. So the whole the whole thing was not right. And uh, uh, hopefully, you know, Jerry's back producing the fourth one, and and uh, we'll do it right. And hopefully, we'll do it right. And hopefully, I'll be back. I'd love to do it. And um, uh, and, uh, I know, believe me, I know the fans want Taggart and Rosewood back. So, uh, hopefully it happens. That's all I can say. I mean, I'm trying to be as diplomatic as I can about it, but, <laughs> but, uh, uh, hopefully it happens and I'd love to do it. And I'd, I'd love to work with Eddie again and the whole crew and, and Jerry and, uh, Jerry and I got along great. And, uh, hopefully it'll happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, not only would it be great just to see you two on screen together again, but it'd also be quite nice to see uh, Judge Reinhold um, on screen again because I, I used to really enjoy watching him during the 80s. He was a proper mainstay of that period.
2: Yeah. Oh, he did some, that thing he did with, uh, what was it, Bette Midler? Uh, uh, what was oh, it, Rufus uh, People. Mm-hmm. ruthless yeah. people well, that was a yeah. wonderful film it, you know judge and i well we just talked the other day as a matter of fact so we're we're talking about about four and and hopefully you know it, 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 they'll do it right and we'll be back uh it would be it would be the right thing to do i think but uh what, what i'm just a dumb actor what do i know <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: well as as we kind of mentioned uh, on a call with you yesterday i was talking uh, coming to america Eddie's uh, long awaited sequel to Come Into America. That succeeded because it paid homage to all of those characters and all of the returning characters that were still alive from that 1988 movie. And that is what really provided Eddie with this this huge hit, you know, through right. Amazon. And uh, now that Netflix come on board, it's, it's so glaringly obvious that the secret to Beverly Hills Cup succeeding, even if they want to carry it on or or introduce new characters to carry it on in the future, is to pave the way with those original characters coming back, like Ghostbusters Afterlife is doing this year. Mm
2: -hmm. Right, right. Well, you know, and I mean, all all they say in three about Taggart was, oh, he's retired and he's playing golf in Arizona or something like that, they say. So, I mean, it'd be very easy to take me out of retirement and as a matter of fact, when I had the dinner with, with Marty, I said, I got a great idea for the, for the new one. And, you know, of course, they're not going to listen to me. But but uh, uh, he said, what? And uh, what's your idea? And I said, Eddie gets in trouble in Detroit, and Taggart and Rose would go to Detroit to help Eddie out, and now we're the fish <laughs> out of water in Detroit. And Marty went, that's it. That's the idea. What a great idea. I said, yeah, but nobody, nobody listens to actors, you know, so. I I did have Marty intrigued there for a while, and then he said no. (laughs) But this was a few years ago. They've been talking about doing four for 20 years.
0: (gasps) I've just thought of the title. Beverly Hills Cops. Plural. Beverly (laughs) Hills Cops.
2: Cops. (laughs) Yeah. That's... That's that's what I thought the original title was supposed to be, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Eddie Murphy wasn't
1: even the Beverly Hills Cop because he was the cop from Detroit. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but speaking of my Martin Brest, his next movie, Midnight Run, mm-hmm. uh, was a reunion uh, with him where you play the character, as we've mentioned earlier, of Marvin Dorfler. Now this movie is loved by everyone. It's one of the most entertaining. Best executed original road movies ever made. Mm, It was written by George Gallo. Oh, and by the way, uh, John, uh, Julie said to say hello. By the way, they are listening. Oh, wonderful!
2: (laughs) Oh, wonderful! Say hi, Julie. How are you? I'll come and barbecue again if you want.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, she'll take it. I said. I said we'd give her a shout out. So there you go. Oh, okay, great. So, so how did this, uh, role come around and, uh, kind of what changed about it? Because I know that other actors were considered like John Goodman and a couple of others, uh, mm-hmm. but I know that there was a lot of changes when you came into it.
2: Right. Well, I, I a very, very good actor friend of mine who's now not with us, but, uh, his name was Alan Vent. Uh, he was a wonderful, wonderful actor and, and he could dissect the script like nobody else. And, um. I was at a play in in L.A., uh, Joey Pantaleono was doing a play in L.A., and I went to see it, and at intermission, Alan was there, and he came over to me at intermission, and he said, uh, so you're going to do Midnight Run, right? And I said, what? And he said, well, you're going to do Midnight Run, right? I mean, you're perfect for it. And I said, I don't even know about it. I, I didn't even know about it. So I called my you know, my you know crackerjack agents, and uh, <laughs> and I said, what's the deal with Beverly, with uh, with Midnight Run? Uh, what what is this movie here? And and they went, oh yeah, you know you know and blah blah blah. And I said, well you know. And then I found out Marty was directing it, and I said, well Marty's directing this thing. Why aren't I getting an interview for this thing? So uh, well you know blah blah blah. So I, I called Marty. And I and I said, uh, Marty, what's to do with Midnight Run? And he said, Oh, you'd be terrific in that. And I and I'm waiting for him to offer it to me, you know. (laughs) And he goes, and I said, Well. And he goes, Well, you got audition for it. And I said, Marty, I got audition for you, (laughs) you know. And he said, It's not me, it's Bobby. Bobby wants to audition with everybody. So I mean, and I respected that, and uh, and uh, and then I learned from that too. after but anyway uh he he wanted to choose who he worked with so um I said that's great that's great so I go into the audition I'm and I'm not kidding there had to be 40 guys out in that hallway reading for Dorfer and I said to myself nobody's getting this part but me I mean you know I read the script and I said I'm doing this film so, and I was excited to go in and work and, and to read with Bobby, you know, I was excited about it because I'm an actor and he's an actor, you know, and everybody else was scared to death out in the hallway. I mean, they were, oh my God, I got to read with De Niro, oh my God, and they were, they were <laughs> like freaking out and I was like, I couldn't wait to get into that room. So, uh, I got in, I, I got into the room and of course everybody's there And uh, and I know Marty did this on purpose. Uh, He said, can you guys hold on a minute? I got to go do something. And he left with everybody. And I know he did that just so Bobby and I would have a minute to talk and, and get to know one another a little bit, you know? So uh, anyway, um, they all came back in and they said, okay, so let's start, start. So we start reading the scene and, and uh, Bobby picks up these book of matches and, and goes to hand them to me and I, I reached out to grab him and he dropped him on the floor and just stared at me and I looked down at the matches and I looked back up at him and I said fuck you and he said fuck you too I said go fuck yourself so, <laughs> 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 but we did it in character you know but I mean he wanted me to pick the matches up and I wasn't going to pick them up I said you know so so uh, George George did tell me after as soon as I walked out of the room Bobby said I want him he, <laughs> he he wanted somebody to stand up to him you know to you know and that's what the, the relationship was you know so uh anyway that's that's my midnight run audition story so I did get it and uh actually Marvin Dorfer was was written as a really nasty, nasty character, not not likable at all. I mean, really nasty character, and uh, he actually in the original script gets killed halfway through the movie. But um, I never looked at it that way, and that was my my friend Alan Vent that I was just telling you about. Uh, he once told me I I had an, uh, I, I accepted a job at one time years ago for a for a Nova. Uh, TV show, uh, and they just offered it to me, and I took it, and then I read the script, and then I I went, oh my God, I have no idea how to play this character, you know, Uh, and it was about Three Mile Island accident, and I played the head of Three Mile Island, who was this kind of nasty executive guy, and anyway, I called Alan, and I said, I don't know how to play this character. So I, I got a hold. Uh, we went and I went out and had a, a cup of coffee and he read the script and he said, so how do you want to play him? I said, well, I said, well, he's the bad guy, Alan. And, and he go and he said, what? And I said, well, he's the bad guy. And I don't really know how to, and he goes, what do you mean a bad guy? And I said, well, he's the bad guy. And he said, there's no such thing as a bad guy. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, do you know anybody that when they were kids, they said, when I grew up, I want to be a bad guy? And I said, no. And he goes, no. He said, you grew up becoming a bad guy, but that's not your goal to be a bad guy. So don't play him as, don't play that as a goal. That's not the goal. You're just doing your job, and you end up being the bad guy. And I said, man, that's incredible. So uh, mm. I, 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 I approached Dorfler that way. He's not a bad guy. He's just doing his job, and Jack is in the way. You're in my way and they, and he says right in the first scene, come on, Jack, we're friends, you know, or, or Bobby says to him, Marvin, we're friends. what are we arguing about? So they're friends and they're just they're at odds because they're trying to do their job and and, and you know, and they're at odds with one another, but they're not bad guys. So I, I never played Dorfler as a bad guy. I played him as a guy trying to do his job, and you're in my way. you know? So we were shooting the film, And Marty came up to me on the set, and we were about a month or so into shooting. And we were actually six months on the road doing that film. But Marty came up, and he said, uh, well, we're not going to kill you in the movie now. And I said, oh, great. And and, uh, Marty had said, uh, he told the studio, we can't kill Dorfler. Everybody will hate us if we kill Dorfler, you know, because I didn't play him that way. You know, I didn't play him as a bad guy. I played him as a guy doing his job. Anyway... So they now they called George Gallo, the writer, and they said, you got to rewrite the, the the whole movie from the time Dorfer is supposed to die. So then I was put into the airport scene and all these other scenes, and, you know, so the, the character was extended. And, and then we got to the scene in Las Vegas where I was supposed to get killed by the two mob guys when I show them the picture of Groden with the towel and they now know where he is. So, uh, and I asked him for two million now, and then they, in the original script, they just shoot me. So, uh, now Marty, we're getting ready to shoot the scene, and Marty goes, Wait a minute, you're supposed to get killed in the scene, and now you're not going to die. He says, So, what are we going to do? I said, Just have him knock me out. And he went, Oh, yeah, great idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, anyway, so that's how it happened. But, uh, I mean, I, I mean, and, and like I, I was saying earlier, you know, I, I wanted to to branch away from that Taggart type of character and, and play a totally different character. And, and uh, it was a, a blast to do that movie. I, I love that movie. so, And the cast was terrific. And we were talking about uh, all the takes that Marty does. Well, the first day of work, I think we were in Chicago, uh, I had a scene with Yafet Koto and... Uh, where he grabs me and he picks me up off the chair and he goes, now look, you son of a bitch, you, and he does all that stuff to me, you know, while he's grabbing me. And so we shoot the scene and Yafet grabs me, look, you son of a bitch, and again, Marty goes, cut. Okay, that was great. Let's do it again. So Yafet goes, well, what was wrong with that? And he goes, nothing. It was great. Let's just do it again. So we do it about 20 times, Right. So, so by, by the last take, I mean, Yafet is sweating, and he's just he's going, son of a bitch, and he's sweating and spitting and something, and, and that was the take they used, you know. So anyway, and I think that's what Marty was going after, you know, but but at the end of the day, that day, we we were on our way back to the hotel, and, and Yafet says, uh, meet me in the coffee shop, I want to talk to you. So I said, okay, so I go and talk to him, and he knew I had worked with Marty before, and he said, what the hell is wrong with this guy? I mean, what was wrong with those first couple of takes? What do I, I why mean, what is he doing? I said, yeah, Fit, I'm telling you, he's going to do about 20 takes of everything, so don't waste your energy on the first couple of them, okay? So <laughs> I said, that's just the way Marty is, and you've got to go with that. And he said, okay, you know, but uh, that was pretty funny.
0: Just going back to the point that you made before, um, I can't remember where I heard this, but I did remember hearing something very, very similar, in that nobody ever views themselves as being the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a really, really good way of approaching roles. The, the, even even like great big movie villains, the best ones are usually the ones that think they're doing something for a more altruistic purpose.
2: Right, right. You know,
0: like, uh, like Thanos, for example, in... Um, in the avengers movies he he's trying to do some good for the
2: galaxy but it just turns out that what he's doing is horrible right uh, that was the, that was the best advice i ever got and I, and i always play it that way I play every character you play the character you play what the character is going for what he's going after you don't you know you don't twirl your mustache and play a villain you know you you play it straight and you, and you and you play him straight and then you know let the situation take care of itself
0: yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, Yafet Koto. Um, well, both him and Charles Grodin passed very sadly right. over this past year. Now, your chemistry between De Niro and Grodin is well known. And obviously, you've now given us a, an insight into Yafet Koto and uh, and his energy. Um, but were there any other memories that uh, that stick in your mind about making that movie with those guys?
2: Well, I mean, on on screen, they were f- fun to work with. I mean, I think the first scene that, that Grodin and I did together was with me and Bobby and Chuck in, in the car uh, with the helicopter chasing us and all that. Uh, and that was the first scene the three of us did together, I think, as I recall, you know. And uh, he was just, he, he Chuck was just, I mean, he, he is what he is. He's just straightforward, and he, and I, 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 he was a great guy. He was a great guy to work with, and and he, I remember this one scene we were shooting when and they were in the alley, and uh, and uh, Bobby's got uh, Chuck handcuffed, and the two bad guys are in the alley, and then I pull up in the car and and I knock the bad guys out and I take them. Uh, I don't know if you remember that that whole sequence, yeah. Though, but but uh, <clears throat> the first. Number one, this is how wonderful Marty is. I, we got to the set that morning, and I said, Marty, how do you want to shoot this? And, and he said, well, you just walk across the street and hold the shotgun to your side and kind of hide the shotgun and walk across the street and go into the alley. And I said, Marty, that's not, that, that's not fun. I said, you know, and he, he goes, what do you mean? What do you want to do? And I said, I don't want to drive into the shot. I want to drive into the shot and blow the shotgun out, <laughs> you know, and he went, okay, great. <laughs> so we got the crew and they had to build a whole ramp and it took them like four or five hours to build this ramp so I could drive the car up into the thing. And, and Marty, you know, that's Marty's so open that way and let you do that stuff, you know? So the first take we did, I pull in, I blow the shotgun out, I get out of the car and then I go into the alley and uh, they'll cut and Gordon goes, the new Ward Bond, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I took that as a huge compliment. I went, "Well, thank you, Chuck. That's nice of you." You know, and you know, then I knocked the guy out. You know, speaking to the microphone, and I knock. I'm gonna do all that stuff. But, but uh, Chuck, Chuck was wonderful. He was, he, he, I, and I got a funny off-camera story. We were we were having dinner one night and Chuck had his, his his wife and his little baby with him and he took them all, all the way uh, on the set the whole time we were shooting and uh, we were in Flagstaff, Arizona and, and uh, we went out and had dinner and it was just me and Chuck and his wife and baby and uh, we were sitting in a hotel dining room and and so you know he starts telling me all these shrink stories. You know the, he and Dabney Coleman used to go to the same shrink. You know, so he's, ta- he's telling he's telling me all these shrink stories. And so I'm kind of nodding and nodding and nodding. And and finally he looks at me and and in a very straight face, just like he was in the movie. He looks at me and he goes, "John, you've never been to a shrink, have you?" <laughs> and I said, uh, "No, Chuck, I haven't." And he said, and he says. I thought so. You're the kind of actor that thinks if you ever straighten your life out, you'll lose all your talent. <laughs> 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 uh, he was he was great. He was a lot of fun. Bless him. God bless him. Yeah. Well,
1: De Niro obviously is an actor who gets into his characters a lot. He really believes in the method, uh, which unfortunately for you ended up with a connecting punch during one scene.
2: Yep. <laughs> and it was a total accident, and totally, it was partly my fault, but, but uh, before we did the first punch scene, uh, Bobby said to me, hey, man, you know, trust me, nothing's going to happen, We're, I'm good, uh, we never had any any problems on Raging Bull or anything, so, you know, I said, Bobby, I trust you, don't worry about it, so the first take, man, whack, man, he hits me right in the jaw. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, it was about nine o'clock in the morning. We had a whole day of filming, and they're putting ice on my jaw and stuff so it doesn't swell up. And Bobby must have apologized to me a hundred times that day. I mean, every two seconds, oh man, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I said, Bobby, I'm good, I'm good. Don't worry about it. And it was it was partly my fault because I I got a little closer than I should have to him, and you know, it's just one of those things. It was an accident, and you know, but uh, it was pretty funny.
1: And one of the uh, neat little. Kind of side stories in Midnight Run involves your cigarettes, <laughs> which right. always seems to be taken by Yafet Kotto in every scene that you share
2: together. Right, that was an ad lib too. That was an ad. That was a, an ad lib I put in there, and it's a funny ad lib from the movie. But uh, when I when I when he steals a cigarette from me this one time, and I say, "Why don't you quit? It'd be cheaper for both of us." And, uh, that, that, that was an ad lib line i just threw that in there and i kept it in the film
1: it's also one of your um last lines in the entire movie is watch your cigarettes around this guy jack <laughs> yeah watch your cigarettes <laughs> for that guy jack <laughs> but yeah i mean uh i think with midnight run i mean it did have uh a lot of tv movie sequels i think there was three of them done which was another midnight run um Midnight Run for Your Life and Midnight Runaround that George Geller, I think, was credited as the writer. And I know Julie was in a couple of them. Yeah. Um, and never, Marvin I never was played. Yeah, Marvin Duffer was played by Edo Ross, who himself is a, a great actor and
2: seems to get every Russian role of the 80s. But um, you can't actually find them in full on YouTube, just letting you know. Because <laughs> uh, George asked me to do it, and I said, nah, I don't want to do that. So, I, you know, I was doing films at the time, and... I didn't want to do it on television. I wanted to do another movie of it, you know. So, and I and I was I was working at the time. I think at that time I, I was actually over in Paris, uh, doing a movie with Gerard Depardieu. Actually,
0: uh, there's also the Creedence Clearwater Revival version, which was Midnight Run Through the Jungle.
2: So. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't even know about those. You know more about you know more about it than I do. <laughs>
1: you just had to fit that joke in there. I had to, see? yeah. Yeah. I like Credence. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Both Midnight Run and Beverly Hills couple of the roles, uh everyone instantly uh remembers you four. And I think you can obviously tell that Marvin Doffler is I think probably one of your most favourite roles out of the two. Would that be right?
2: Yep, yeah. I love playing Marvin. I mean, I was so comfortable playing him uh, I didn't even feel like I was acting, I was just, I was so into that, I was, I I was him, you know, Uh, I I just, I just melted into that character and, and had fun playing him, you know, and, uh, uh, you talk, (laughs) you talk about Bobby getting into his character, we're doing a, a wardrobe fitting before we started shooting, and, uh, we're in the wardrobe department and, uh, trying on different vests and shirts and pants and stuff, and. So Bobby came out with a pair of black jeans on, and he and he says to me, "Well, what do you think of these?" And I said, "They look great, Bob. They look great." And he went, "Oh, okay." So he leaves and he comes back about ten minutes later, and he's got this black pair of jeans on, and he says, "What do you think of these?" And I said, "They look great, Bob." You know. So he goes, "Oh, okay," and he leaves. He comes back about ten minutes later, and he's got a black pair of jeans on, and he goes, "What do you think of these?" And I go. They look great. I mean, what do you want from me? They look, they look fine, you know. And they were, they were different in some kind of way. But he wanted to make sure he got the perfect set of jeans that he felt right in, you know. And that, and that's he's very particular that way, which is great. I love that. I love that. And I, the the vest I wore, Bob and I actually went out with a with a bounty hunter in New York one night. Uh, Bob went out with him one night, and then I went out with him a different night. Uh, his name was Stan Rifkin, and he was a famous bounty hunter back in New York. And uh, it, it was a it was a trip going out with him, and I picked up a few little things from him uh, while I was out. But uh, uh, anyway, um, I was going to tell a story. I don't know if I could tell it, but uh, it's just there's a lot of F-bombs in it. That's all. Oh, uh,
1: go ahead. We, we don't uh, mind. We're English. We
0: invented I can. that word.
1: <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> well, Stan, you know, he he said the word every other word every other word, <laughs> and you know and Bobby say Bobby and I say it a lot in the movie, but we really wanted to make sure that we did it at the right times, you know. I mean, it, it bothers me, and I don't know if it bothers you or anybody else, but um, when it's used gratuitously, it, it just doesn't have the effect, you know. You you can tell when people are just using it to use it, you know. And Bobby and I wanted to make sure that when we used it, it was used in the right context and the right way, you know. And uh, we had our meter. (laughs) 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 Eh, Honest to God, honest to God. The first Beverly Hills cop, and this was our meter, okay. And the first Beverly Hills cop, when Eddie's in the back of a semi truck with all the cigarettes and stuff, uh, and Eddie goes, "I wanted five grand," and the only guy, he said, "The only guy has two grand," and and uh, and the, and, uh, and actually, that was uh, Frank Pesci that played that character. No relation to Joe, but uh, anyway, uh, he says, "Take the f-ing two fucking grand," and 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 Bobby and I both said, "That's one too many f**ks." <laughs> mm. It should be, it should be take the fucking two grand or take the two f***ing grand, but not take the f***ing two f***ing grand. That was one too many f***s. So that was our f*** meter, you know. So we would do a scene where we would use the word and then at the, when they would yell know, cut, we would look at one another and say too many f***s. You know, we would, I mean, we really watched ourselves. And I think, I think somebody, somebody counted the f- and been midnight running it was like 138 or something like that but uh (laughs) anyway we we really did choose the time we used that word you know because we wanted it to be effective and not just gratuitous
1: yeah 138 times that's almost as many as me using it fitting a volume (laughs) (laughs) putting up some ikea
0: furniture No, I know exactly what you mean, because uh, this is going to sound like a very old man kind of thing to say. But particularly when you do hear it coming out of like teenage kids mouths, particularly it's very prevalent around around Manchester. It does seem like every other word is and you think, no, it loses any and all power that it it does.
2: It does. Yeah, you know what?
1: In some cases, it's the only word you can make out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but you're right. I mean, it, it loses its uh, its uh, strength if you use it too often. It's just it's like saying the after a while. You know, it's it just doesn't have its uh, its impact.
1: I, I'll tell you one thing though. I cannot wait to hear the amount of beeps that Steve is putting
2: in this edit from this section. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I should have said F instead of. But, you
0: know. Ah, it's fine. It just makes it funnier. <laughs> it does.
2: I'm, I'm just
0: going to put in. I'm just going to go and just search out just a load of sound effects and put a different sound effect <laughs> over each one. <laughs> Me and Barbie the Nero said beep and then quack and then a car horn. <laughs>
2: that
1: that will be the most listened to segment of anything. It'd be brilliant. Oh
0: God, I'm going to have to do that now as
1: well, aren't you? I? Are. You will have Shit. to. Do that. Well, well, John, as we said, I uh, wanted to really cover uh, your career up until uh, the end of the 80s. And we want to definitely have you back to cover everything from kind of hardball onwards, your you journey through the 90s to the present day as well in movies like Death in Texas. And uh,
2: Once Upon a River uh, just came out a year ago. And that, that's the one I played, A Hermit on the River. And it's taken from a, a book by Johnny, Bonnie Joe Campbell once upon a river and uh, the character that the movie's very very character driven and and it's a very very uh a nice journey film about a young girl so uh yeah i'm, I'm very proud of that film too so I'd, I'd love to talk about that sure definitely
1: but it's uh, one section of our show that we always invite our guests to be a part of And that is, of course, nominate five. Now's the time to nominate
2: five. Nominate five? Yes, nominate five. But three or
1: four or six or nine. Now's the time to nominate five. Okay. So, Steve, what is nominate five?
0: Well, nominate five is the part of the show where we invite our guests, if we have one, to nominate five of their favourite things in relation to the world of movies. Uh, last week we had Ralph Brown talking about his favourite uses of music. Songs, yeah, favourite uses of songs. It's music, whatever. What do you want from me? <laughs> <laughs> um, in uh, in a movie We've also had favourite pieces of cinematography uh, Favourite films Favourite directors It doesn't matter what it is This week's Nominate 5 is going to be
1: 5 It's top 5 Favourite movie duos mm. So this is your, your personal favourite Counting down from 5 We will give you a countdown And tell us who they are and why Are you ready John? Wow I don't know my favorite duos. Yeah, basically, yeah, it can be comedy pairings, movie pairings. For example, okay. as All you are right. like uh, Taggart and Rosewood. Taggart and Rosewood. Your personal yeah. Favorites? Taggart and Rosewood's okay. one of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Well, we'll start from who who have we got at number five? Uh, let's
2: see, Mathau and Lemon in Odd Couple. The odd yep. Couple. Brilliant. Uh, and grumpy old men, definitely. Yep, yeah, uh, I would go with that. Uh, God, you're gonna—you're making me think here. Uh, <laughs> I've got to
0: admit, I really do have a soft spot for that one, particularly in um, the Odd Couple, because I played the Walter Matthau part on stage. Did you? Uh, yeah. I, you
2: know what? I always wanted to play that role. I uh, always wanted to. I always wanted to play uh, uh, that that role.
0: It's so good. Uh, it's not uh, the things you did. It's not the things you said. It's you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: It's not spaghetti, it's linguine.
0: Now it's garbage. Now it's garbage. You keep leaving me little notes on my pillow. We're all out of cereal. F-U. It took me three and a half minutes to work out that F-U meant Felix Unger. <laughs> That's so a great good. play. So, great so play. good.
2: Yeah. Uh, this is- okay, who do we have at number four? Mm, uh, let's see. Number four duos. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't go with number five. I'd- I'd put these guys at one or two, uh, are Redford and Newman. Oh, for Budge Cassidy and a Sundance Kid. And The Sting. The Sting. Oh, yeah, I oh, loved it. Sting. I The
1: Sting. I'd forgot they were in that as well.
2: Oh, The Sting's great movie. I love that movie. Yeah,
1: and that was filmed uh, at um, Castle Green in Pasadena, yeah. which was uh, some of the sets, and uh, I've stayed in that building on the top floor, and it is an amazing building. Really? Really? Yeah.
2: Yeah, Newman and Redford were well. Butch Cassidy, were great. But The Sting, they were great too. It was, I love The Sting. I watch it every now and then. Just, to, they don't make movies like that anymore, as far as I'm concerned. But, they 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 would be in my top guys. Uh, let's see, who else? Uh, Laurel and Hardy were pretty cool.
1: Yeah, that's
2: the first time Laurel and Hardy's come up on uh, this podcast.
0: Yeah. You would have thought they would have come up before now.
2: Do you know do you, in the reviews of Beverly Hill's Cop we got likened to Laurel and Hardy a lot. Yeah. It was a huge compliment for me. So, you know. Yeah. Even though, you I, don't, definitely even see though it. I don't think I'm that fat, but that's all right. But... <laughs> I think it was the
1: mustache.
2: Yeah, <laughs> probably yeah, it might have been. It might have been. Okay. So
1: who do you put? We've got two left. Duos. Boy, oh
2: boy, that's well, you know what? Mel, Mel Gibson and Danny Glover were pretty good in Lethal Weapon as duos. Yeah,
1: yes. I'd go for that. It's really because no, Lethal Weapon was kind of the main competition towards the Beverly Hills Cop movies at the time.
2: Well, yeah, well, it yeah. came out after, you know. Uh, let's see, who else? What, what I got, one left? One left. One left. Let's make it count. You guys are <laughs> making me think here. Uh,
1: oh, man, I can't think of one. Should, should we uh, just say... Uh, De Niro and Grodin.
2: De Niro and Grodin. That'd be a great one. That that Yeah, I don't even... Why didn't I think of that? Yeah, De Niro and Grodin. <laughs> of course, I always consider us a threesome, but, you know, that's all right. <laughs> that's De good Niro, because... Grodin, and Ashton, I always think of. It. That's all right. No, De Niro and Grodin's <laughs> a good one. That's a good one. As well as Foley, Taggart, and Rosewood. So, yeah, you seem
1: kind of specialist in those threesomes. <laughs> <laughs> Take that as you want, I guess. Yeah. But uh, enough about the Playboy Mansion. I was thinking they just <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> I know it. Oh dear. Well, uh What have you got going on at the moment, John? I know that Death in Texas got released during the pandemic, yeah. and the good thing about it is, is movies like this got a better viewership because of all of the blockbuster movies that were kind of put on hold or their release dates were pushed back. A lot of independent movies like these got a lot more showing, especially on the drive-in circuit as well.
2: Well, Death in Texas actually was supposed to open in the theaters, too, and it didn't because of the pandemic, and Once Upon a River was supposed to be released in theaters, and it wasn't, so it's it's kind of unfortunate, because I, I don't go to the theater that often, because I'm a member of the Academy, and I get all the movies sent to me, so I get to watch them at home in my convenience, but uh, but I enjoy the experience of going to the theater and eating popcorn and, and doing all that stuff, but... Uh, yeah, unfortunately, the pandemic, and I don't, I don't know, uh, I know they had this big thing with uh, Scarlett Johansson, I think, is suing Disney because part of her contract was tied to box office receipts, and there is no box yeah. office anymore. Mm. So so uh, I, I know it's screwing up a lot of things. So uh, I, I don't know if the theaters are ever going to get back because people are have got, have gotten kind of used to Staying at home and in the comfort of their home and watching movies, so uh, that's a shame. Like because that theater experience is. Speaking of the theater experience, you know, I mean, being a stage actor, you want that audience uh, feedback. You know, you need that feedback. Uh, I mean, you know when you're cooking and when you're not by the audience. Mm. You know, you can you can get that feeling uh, on stage. You know when you're dying and when you're when you're doing well. So. And then it doesn't have to be any noise. You can just feel that vibe, you know? Um But uh I remember when, when Beverly Hills Cop, the first one premiered in, uh, in uh, Westwood, of course, the opening nights, all the, the, the industry people, you know, and you don't get the same reaction from the industry people because they're looking at it through a different lens, you know? So I mean, it was accepted accepted very well. Don't get me wrong, but but uh, Judge and I said to one another after that, we said, "Hey, let's go to a regular theater tomorrow and you know see how the audience responds to it, you know, just, just out of our own care. So we went to another theater in Westwood that was showing it the next night, and we sat way up in the balcony in the back, you know, hidden way in the back. And I'm telling you, the audience was going crazy. I mean, they were hooting and screaming, and, and, I mean, it was unbelievable. Right before the end of the movie, Judge and I looked at each other and said, we better get out of here, man, before this movie ends, because we're going to get mobbed, you know, so. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was great to want, to see a regular audience and, and you say, wow, man, this thing's going to be big, you know. And so, I mean, we didn't know, you know, but, uh so, yeah, yeah, you lose that, that, that audience experience, I think, from the, life, from the being in the theatre, you know. Anyway, hopefully, I don't know if it's ever going to turn around, but... I hope it does. I hope it does, too.
0: Because, like you say, there is something special about sitting in a darkened room and having a bucket of popcorn and just watching something magical unfold on that piece of fabric in front of you.
2: Right, right, yeah. Did you guys uh, happen to see uh, 1917 last year? No. Yes,
1: yes, it's amazing.
2: I went to the cinemas to see that in LA. Now that that movie should be seen in a theater, in a movie theater on a big screen. I mean, yes, that, that, the did. photography in that movie was unbelievable. You know, and there's not there's not a cut in that movie until about a half an hour into the film. There's not one cut. I mean, it's one shot for half an hour. I mean, it, it, the yes, cinematography is absolutely stunning.
0: Funnily enough, I was actually talking to my girlfriend the other day saying, I really want to watch 1917, and I've been wanting to watch it for a while because uh, I did see They Shall Not Grow Old, the, the Peter Jackson documentary. And yes, uh, it, after watching that, I thought, oh, God, I really want to see 1917 because it came out more or less about the same time.
2: Right. I mean, no, just just see it for the the photography is just... I mean, how how they did that is just phenomenal to me. Without a cut for a half an hour, and going through trenches and lakes and all this stuff, and it's just this camera following everything. It's a, it's an amazing shot. Yeah, unfortunately, it loses a lot on a
1: smaller screen, especially if you end up watching on a laptop or a phone. Don't don't right. do that. No. Whatever oh, no, the no. biggest
2: screen you've got, actually sit and watch it. You know what? Right.
0: Stop watching films on your mobile, for God's sake.
2: Well, I can't do that. <laughs> I, I have a big screen TV, that, that's, that's as far as I'll go. I won't watch it on a phone or something, that's that's crazy.
1: Well, I understand that you have uh, some uh, Comic-Con appearances, you're appearing with uh, Ronnie Cox at uh, Comic-Con soon, is that right?
2: Yeah, we are, we're going to a Comic-Con in Newark, New Jersey, uh, uh, Halloween weekend actually, uh, Ronnie and I will be there, uh, it's called Chiller, uh, Chiller Comic-Con or something like that. And uh, so Ronnie, yeah, I haven't seen Ronnie in a while, so it'll be fun to get back together with him. And uh, hopefully hopefully, we'll know something about COP4 by then. <laughs> so everyone make your way over
1: to Newark so you can get your uh, plastic bananas signed. There
2: we go. Okay, plastic bananas or real ones, I don't know. I'd go for the plastic ones, <laughs> it'll last longer.
1: It'll last longer, yeah. that's for sure.
2: Yeah. That's for
1: sure. Okay, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure having you on this week. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure delving into kind of, I guess, the first half of uh, your career. Yeah, thank you. uh,
2: Thank you, it was fun. You guys are fun to chat with and, uh, you know, you ask some good questions. You really made me uh, turn my brain out for the uh, five duos there. But uh, anyway.
0: (laughs) 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 We like to challenge. (laughs)
1: <laughs> we, 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 we like to we like to throw a bit of lib out there. Right? Well, you, you know
2: what that's going to be like when it, when the show's over. I'm going to think about forty of them when the show's <laughs> over, and I'll go, "Oh, why didn't I think of those guys? Oh, those guys were great. <laughs> I should have thought of that." You know, I I said that I said that that Anthony Hopkins, we were doing Instinct together, uh, Hopkins and I. And, well, we can talk about this the next time, or but anyway, um, I, I I told Tony one time he, we call him Tony, but. Uh, uh, I told him I was doing some uh, 101 acting, acting 101 the other day. And he said, acting 101, what's that? I said, that's when you're on the 101 freeway at the end of the day and you go, why didn't I do that? Why didn't I do that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I think every single performer has done the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. I,
2: and I told I told Anthony it was acting 101 and he laughed his ass off He was very, Tony, meeting, meeting. Well, we can talk about that when we talk about instinct sometime.
1: Definitely. And that kind of leaves us with, Steve, asking the question of what's what's in the box.
2: What's
1: in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box?
0: Ow. You know, we're, what, we're almost halfway through our first year, and I still love hearing that music. Gets me every time. Well, uh, what's in the box is the part of the show where Andy tries to get me away from all of the big budget popcorn flicks, not including Beverly Hills Cop 2, because that's a classic, um, but he tries to get me into more critically acclaimed cinematic fair. Andy's going to put his hand into a box and pull out the name of a movie that is certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. If I haven't seen it, then I go away and watch it the night before we record our next podcast. If I have seen it, then he keeps pulling out names until we find one that I haven't seen. So this can sometimes go really well, this can sometimes go really wrong, but what do we have this week? Andrew, please, if you please, thank you, please, sir, please. Okay.
2: Do, Do you want me here for this? Oh, yeah, 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 let, yeah. Yeah, let's S- get, let's
0: get your reaction. Yeah. Oh,
2: okay. You
1: might not have seen it either. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. This is going to seem like such a setup. <laughs> and it's not It genuinely is not. But your what's in the box for this week is 2007's gone baby gone starring No! John <laughs> <laughs> that was picked totally at random <laughs> that could not have gone any perfect there's like a thousand films in this box
0: <laughs> oh my god you are shitting me
1: <laughs> i am not seriously it's a brilliant film as well i haven't and, uh, i haven't seen it either oh Wait. perfect that could not have worked any better if I would have tried. Oh, my God. That's brilliant. God. So, yes, yeah, now you've got to go and watch oh. Gone Baby Gone and then give us a review on it next week.
0: Wait, is is Gone Baby Gone the one that with was Rosamund set, Pike? Oh, I, I swear well? down it was not.
1: No, right. that's, that's Gone Girl. That's Gone Girl. All right. Okay. This one's so. good
2: because it, it reunites John with Ed Harris. So It was uh, ben, ben Affleck's uh, uh, debut as a director, actor.
1: Exactly. I'm okay. gonna hear about that one when you come back on as well. Yeah. So at least
0: yeah, Steve will true. have seen it. Yeah. Okay, so that's my that's my homework for next week. Gone baby gone. So no pressure. Um especially if you end up listening in. <laughs> John, it has been absolutely amazing to talk to you. I we've got so much, so much more to talk about that we, we will probably end up going to have to do another couple of shows with you because there's just so much to go over. But for now, thank you very much for being such an amazing
2: guest. Well, thank you very much for having me. You guys are great. And uh, anytime you want, uh, we'll chat, okay?
0: We're going to take you up on that. Awesome.
2: (laughs) All right. Thank you. Tell everybody to write to Netflix and put Taggart and Rosewood back in four.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Hashtag release the Taggart cut. Yep. All
2: right. Okay, guys. Netflix, you've heard. All right. Thank you very much, John, and we'll speak to you soon. You bet. Thank you very much.
0: Well, in that case, I guess we've uh, only got one thing left to do, which is say goodbye from me.
1: And goodbye from him. Goodbye. they be fooled by some banana and a tailpipe.